0: All right, well, we are on lesson 11, down the home stretch here for this quarter, as we're studying God's attributes. Remember, the last uh, couple of two, three weeks, we've been speaking of God's uh, uh, attributes of goodness and the. The wonderful thing about them is that God has uh, invited us, even commanded us, and enabling us to share in those attributes of goodness, basic morality and godliness and so on. Um, Before that, we, we looked at God's greatness categories, which are reserved only for him. His omnipotence, and omniscience, and omnipresence, and so on. Well, today, we're looking at something that's a bit of each. um, And that's God's sovereignty. Sovereignty. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this before, but there's a word within sovereignty that really is at the core of the issue. What is that? He reigns, which means what? He's in charge. He calls the shots. right? That's what his sovereignty is all about. So that first statement here on page 81, God has absolute sovereign dominion over his creation to do by them, for them, or upon them whatever he desires to do. And of course, when you couple that with his omnipotence, that means, okay, he has this sovereign will, but he also has the power to make sure it happens. right? Um, now, have you ever thought that that's kind of scary? Why would it be kind of scary? Well, if we had a human being with that that role, absolute sovereignty and absolute power to execute his sovereignty would that be good news or bad news I mean, that would be bad news, <laughs> right about that, yeah yeah um but we need to be careful not to project onto god the 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 manner by which a mere mortal a human being a fallen human being would exercise those prerogatives. Um, And that's why it's helpful to understand that God is not only sovereign and all-powerful, but he's good. Everything he does is good, right? We may not understand it all, but we know, both from our personal experience and from scripture, that everything he does is good. And so, we ought not to approach a, a, an understanding of God's sovereignty with these kind of qualifications that normally come to mind when you think about the power and sovereignty that that um, human beings uh, have from time to time. In fact, I said sovereignty is, is sort of in between the greatness qualities and the goodness qualities because although on the one hand, none of us will ever be sovereign in the way that God is sovereign, in terms of all all, all um, in control of, of all things, absolute sovereign dominion. However, right from the very beginning, he created man to share in that dominion and responsibility and authority. And so there really is no authority being exercised on earth by human beings that's not delegated by God. So we have delegated authority and what comes with that is what? Responsibility. Uh, uh, anyone who, who uh, is in a position of authority is answerable, right? Now of course many of you are familiar with, with um, the military where there are levels of authority, right? And the lower levels are accountable to the higher levels. And um, um, I guess it was President Truman who said, the buck stops here. Well, in a human sense, that may be right. It may stop with the president. But even the president is accountable, right? And in our system of government, the president is accountable Uh, in the first instance, to the other two branches of government and to the people, in in some respect, right? He's a servant, as all civil servants are. But even beyond that, he's accountable to who? To God, right? There's there's no authority on earth that is without accountability. Uh, Any authority people exercise on earth is delegated or stolen Um, But, God has established systems of authority within uh, the family, the church, the state, and um, in all of those domains, those who exercise God-given authority are subject to his oversight. And of course, we go back to... um, to uh, Genesis 1 and the creation. God put Adam and Eve in position of authority, a stewardship over uh, the rest of creation, uh, exercising dominion and uh, rule. Not absolute in God's sense, because it's always subject to him, Uh, but God did create us to share in delegated authority. And um, he's even given us a will, right, to make choices, moral choices. And, and some of them um, not necessarily issues of morality, but um, he's created us with the capacity to choose. And even that is subject to his ultimate sovereignty. So let's take a look at some of those, those concepts here. Uh, I'll reread the first one here before we look at some of these passages. God has absolute sovereign dominion over His creation. Um, sort of makes sense, right? If He created everything, um, He's in charge, right? Um, we are answerable to Him because He's our Creator. He set it up. He set it up that way, and. Um, Uh, We're not independent. We don't have our own innate sovereign uh, capabilities or even will. Anyway, he has absolute sovereign dominion over his creation to do by them, for them, or upon them whatever he desires to do. And as I said, of course, we need to understand that in the context of everything he desires to do and everything he does do, is good. And um, so, look for example at that first passage there, uh, from Genesis 14, where, where um, uh, the context is Abraham was involved in rescuing his nephew Lot from those. Uh, Pagan kings who uh, uh, pillaged uh, the lower kingdoms, one of which where Lot was held. And so Abraham and uh, some friends of his assembled a bit of a militia to go after them and actually defeated them, come back and uh, they're met by Melchizedek, the king of Salem, uh, as it was known at the time. But that's basically um, Jerusalem, that's where he was located. And he kind of appears out of nowhere, but he's described as um, a priest of the most high So it says, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High, and he, Melchizedek, blessed him, Abram, or yeah, still Abram at this stage, uh, and said, "Blessed be Abram and of God, uh, Abraham of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be." God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, Melchizedek, um, I'm sorry, he, Abram, gave him, Melchizedek, a tenth of all. So, what's the point here? Um, It's evidence that, that God had raised up, not just Abram, but also Melchizedek to um, perform certain roles in God's overall design for history Um, and these two paths cross. Uh, And Melchizedek particularly here is describing God as God most high. That's a way of saying that he's um, certainly far greater than us, but ultimately he's saying that this is the sovereign God of the universe who he's representing and who has... No, actually Melchizedek was not Jesus in a, in a um, pre-incarnate state. Um, the thing that Hebrews, when Hebrews is referring to Melchizedek, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's not saying that he didn't have any parents. What it's saying is that his priesthood was not hereditary. The Levitical priesthood, which is the contrast that Hebrews makes, was hereditary down from Aaron all the way down. Um, and it says that Jesus' priesthood will be like that of Melchizedek in that it's not hereditary. Jesus wasn't even from the tribe of Levi, Right. He was from the tribe of Judah. And so, like Melchizedek, his priesthood was directly from the Father, God the Father. Um, um, It wasn't inherited. It was bestowed directly, just like, apparently, Melchizedek's priesthood was. Uh, So Melchizedek becomes something of an example of the kind of priesthood that Jesus would have. And I guess there's some good lessons in that. But the point here is that Melchizedek particularly recognized that both of them, Melchizedek and Abram, served the only sovereign God. And that it says, God, blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He wasn't saying, um, you've done a great job avenging the capture of, of lot and and you succeeded in this good for you abram what was he saying god was in control in all this right he recognized that and he gave blessing to god look at uh the next one could someone read exodus eight twenty two?
1: but on that day i will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people are living so that no swarms of insects will be there, in order that you may know that I, the Lord, am in the midst of the
0: land. And so the land in question here is Egypt. The Israelites are in Egypt. God's going to be bringing about these various plagues. And um, uh, God's telling Moses that the plagues that are going to be happening on the rest of Egypt are not going to be, and this particular one particularly, um, um the land where they're staying in Goshen the the portion of Egypt where the Israelites were staying would be spared of that and so God's bringing on the the um, the plague and in part so that people realize that this isn't just some random infestation of, of um, insects and so on, because it's applied everywhere else except where Israel's staying. And so it's God's bringing it on, but it's also his protecting of his people. And uh, it should have been obvious to people that there was that difference. Why is there that difference? It wasn't just a random infestation. It was a plague from the sovereign God who was plaguing the rest of Egypt, but persevering or preserving um, the Israelites. Yeah,
1: and it's just so cool—the whole, um, all the ten plagues and how God shows the Egyptians how their gods over all these different aspects are not sovereign. He is it's just so cool.
0: Yeah, and it it so it crazy. should have it, it shouldn't have taken. 10 plagues for them to kind of make that connect the dots, right? Um, but that, yeah, that's what he was doing. Uh, I mean, I think it's not necessarily that it took them 10 plagues to connect the dots that, oh, he's going after our pantheon. I think it, it was 10 plagues because God was building up. Because, like, probably after three, they're like, oh, he's going after our minor gods. How dare he? Then he went after Ra and, like, number one god. So. Yeah, final nail in the coffin, God, um, God of the Israelites, is more powerful than anything the Egyptians could imagine. Yeah. Not only more powerful, but it's was the only God. There's other gods yeah. are just false. They're just made up. Mm-hmm. They're not cinematic. real. <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway, so there's a demonstration of his sovereignty, not just in the bringing of the plagues, but in the selective application of the plagues. That should have been evident to everybody. Okay, and then the third one there in Deuteronomy ten. Could someone read that? For
1: the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe.
0: Yeah, that's good. Actually, I was looking for the the one right before it.
1: (laughs) Behold, to the Lord your God belong. Heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in
0: it. So to the Lord belongs. So He owns everything. Why would He own everything? He made it.
1: (laughs) it. Yeah,
0: out of nothing, right? So He's in charge. Um, And and so because of that, as as, um, Darina read from Deuteronomy ten the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, meaning what? He's over all these supposed gods, um, far exceeding them. Uh, he's the only one who actually exists. The others are only imaginary, right? Um, and it's it's a way, and you see that repeatedly through scripture, um, in this case, God of gods and Lord of lords, sometimes King of kings and, and references to Christ and so on, um, meaning that he's superior than any other supposed or real sovereignty anyone else would be exercising. He is um, over all of them, for sure. Okay, let's flip down to First Samuel 2. Six through eight. You mind it? Did you want to read that?
1: The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the shoal and raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit the seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he sets the world on them.
0: That's quite a long list, actually. And and what do these things have in common? That these are activities that we can point to the actions of people, this person did that, or didn't do that, or caused this, or that. Um, But when it really comes down to it, God's sovereignty is over all of that. Now, it doesn't mean that people don't have Uh, Accountability, and that they don't—it's not that people are puppets. He's created us in His image to have uh, uh, the capacity to choose, and but our will, patterned after His overall sovereign will, but our our will is uh, not absolute, like His will is absolute. And so our choices are accountable to his oversight, right? His, um, his overall plan for things. If, if things are kind of happening in a way, if they appear to us that they're happening in a way that's contrary to God's will, it may be that he's permissively allowing things to happen so that what he actually wants is going to happen through even, even those things. And so it says he... He kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol, that is, um, um, causes people to die uh, and raises up. He makes poor and rich. Um, You know, usually the rich pat themselves on the back. Look what I've done. The poor usually cry out, why is everybody around me oppressing me? And uh, both the rich and the poor uh, have had a role, probably, in their in their status, but ultimately that subject of what? God's sovereignty. Um, he brings low and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap, basically saying the same thing, to make them sit with nobles. Uh, Completely undeserved, but completely part of God's choice from time to time. It doesn't mean he does that with everybody, but um, uh, his choices are for him to make. and to inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. What are the pillars of the earth? What's that referring to, you think? The foundations. Foundations. Yeah, but even when you think of foundation of the earth, the earth is kind of a globe, right? And it's kind of hanging out there in space. It's not really resting on a foundation in a literal sense, right? So what is it? It's more um, the the, the um, created order. God created everything and everything is subject to what we might call the laws of nature. Well, It's not natural actually, it's supernatural. God created it that way. Things are sustained in that creation uh, according to his oversight and, and word and, and so on. Um, and so the foundations of the created order, I think, is, is the, the, the weight of it here. Um, the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. Uh, he created it, uh, it. It runs the way he created it to run. Um, he's actively involved. He didn't, he didn't um, just create the world and the people and the universe, wind it up and just say, good luck. But he's actively involved in the day-to-day. Uh, we touched on that concerning his, um, his imminence, his, his being involved with us. OK, uh, let's go to 1 Chronicles 29, the memory verse there. Could someone read that?
1: Thine, O Lord, is the greatness, and the power, and the glory, and the victory, and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, thine is the dominion, O Lord. And thou dost exalt thyself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from thee, and thou dost rule
0: over all, and in thy hand is power and might, and it lies in thy hand to make great and to strengthen everyone." So that's just a, a prayer of, of praise, acknowledging God's sovereignty. Uh, that he does rule over all, um, and it just repeats some of the things we've we've spoken of already. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. Let's go down to the other memory verse there, Psalm 103. Do I want to read that?
1: The Lord has established
0: his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Yeah. His throne is in the heavens. Um, significance there is that he's He's um, aware of all things. All things are exalted far above his creation. Um and his sovereignty rules over all. Um, again, it's just acknowledging that in in the psalm, again, kind of a prayer, right? Acknowledging his sovereignty. How
1: foolish we are when we think that we are the main character of our own story. Mm-hmm. And we live our daily days forgetting that God is the one that we need to praise and live for.
0: Yeah. Our whole experience is um, left to ourselves. I mean, just our our natural, any human being, their natural inclination is to think, yeah, I'm the master of my universe. And I, I, um, um, that those who persevere and, and, and get ahead um, deserve all of the, the, the benefits of that. Um, and there's probably even some recognition that those who do that in a, in a way that takes advantage of other people and they're doing it unfairly, um, are, many people would, would agree that eventually justice will be done and, and they won't get away with that. But the general inclination for all of us is that you know we make day-to-day decisions, moment-by-moment decisions. Uh, we have work to do. It's legitimate. Um, and we, we think of ourselves as in control. And there's a sense in which God has given us that authority, that responsibility, and so on. But what we lose sight of is that all of it is subject to his ultimate sovereignty. We're accountable to him for the choices we make. And that in spite of us, he may be doing things um, to accomplish his purposes, whereas um, we might not see it in the moment. But we can look back, as believers, we can look back and say, I see what God was doing. And isn't that comforting? But in the moment, we tend to fret because we think of ourselves as in charge and I'm losing control and all that. Um, um, But there is this balance. He's given us responsibility. We are to make good choices, but we need to make those choices with explicit uh, acknowledgement that he's ultimately in control and we're accountable to him.
1: Um, Is it possible in... Our limited human understanding to like fully reconcile God's not just authoritative sovereignty, where like He makes the rules and we are accountable to Him as Him being the authority, but like
0: His practical sovereignty over like how He also is governing everything to the atomic level and the hearts of men and. Then at the same
1: time giving us responsibilities and we have a choice.
0: And... It's hard to g- grasp, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. That, um, you know, where does our ability to choose and have exercise dominion and responsibility. Um, uh, wh- wh- one way to think of it is, is, where does that end, and where does God's overall sovereignty um, fit in? Mm-hmm. And I guess the way I think of it is, is God's overall sovereignty is like the the container around which our limited ability to choose operates. Mm-hmm. And yes, we have the ability and responsibility to make good choices, um but it's all kind of it's not independent of it's all within God's own sovereign will and control and particularly in, as it's happening it's it's i would say impossible for us to figure out did i do that independently or was god working through me to do that sometimes in hindsight we get better insight about That balance and and so on. Um, But I think the key for us in terms of application is never lose sight of the fact that everything is is within God's sovereign control. And we can't just sit back and say, well, what will be will be, because he's given us responsibility, delegated authority. And we need to exercise that in a way that would both acknowledge his overall sovereignty but also submit to it willingly. So yeah, it's it's people have have you know, theologians and philosophers have forever, basically it seems, debated and wrestled with this this connection of God's sovereignty and man's will. And often they'll think of it as man's free will. Well, it's not really free. It's it's, it's got a measure of freedom, but there are boundaries to it, and it is ultimately controlled by God, even at the micro level. Um, I don't know if you all remember that, that uh, early on I may have made the, the observation that in pretty much all of these doctrinal areas, the major areas, there's at least one thing that's really hard to get our minds wrapped around and so when we studied scripture one of the hardest things to to get our minds adjusted to is the reality that God's word is His revelation It's and the words themselves in that revelation are inspired not just the concepts and yet, God very much used and inspired the writers to use and draw from their own experience, their their, their writing styles and historical context, and it's, it's very much showing the human participation in the authorship of Scripture. But every word is inspired by God, and yet it's not a dictation in, in most cases, sometimes he would tell a prophet, you know, say such and such. But there's a, a lot of scripture that's just not dictation. It's inspiration at the level of the words. And that's hard to get our minds around, right? So we move to the nature of God. How do you get your mind wrapped around the Trinity, right? There's a mystery there. We He's revealed a certain amount to us. Um, but, and we need to continue probing the implications and, and what scripture actually says about it. But to think that we could kind of put God in a box and figure him out is pretty presumptuous, <laughs> right? Um, and here's another one. What is this, this balance or connection between the sovereignty of God and the will of man? there's a certain amount of conundrum there that's hard for us to get our minds around. It doesn't mean we shouldn't study it, we should see what God says about it and act accordingly, but to think that we would completely understand it is probably not realistic. And we'll see that as we go along And a lot of what God has revealed, there are mysteries there that we can understand to a certain extent, but... um, we shouldn't feel disappointed if we still have questions, how does that really work? <laughs> you know? Um. So
1: Luther had this book, The Bondage of the Will, and he talked a mm-hmm. lot about that. Mm-hmm. And I really believe in determinism. I think that God is the one that designed um, everything, the good and the bad in our life. is so far God's plan for our own, for his purpose, to glorify him and to make us be more So everything also when we saw for example, we were talking about the plagues in Egypt. He hardened. He hardened the mm-hmm. the heart of the Pharaoh. I was him. Yeah, Glenda. hardened his heart. Yeah. So he's the one that everything in his plan. Everything is so I don't know if we can say that we have free will. <laughs> I think no. it's not.
0: That that would be that would be uh... Uh, an error certainly an oversimplification we have a will he designed us created us in his image which includes intellect, emotion, will spiritual capacity and so on Um, but none of that is independent of God it's all subject to God Um, since it strikes my mind I might just as well say it Um, One of the demonstrations of God's sovereignty that just amazes me is when he accomplishes his sovereign will through the sinful choices of man. And so, you know, one good example of that is the experience of Joseph, sold into slavery by his brothers And he had every right to question God, you know, what did I do? Um, And yet, later in life, he saw the way that God was using this for his own purposes, and he was actually able to explain that to his brothers. Mm -hmm. You meant it for me, you meant it for evil to me, but God meant it for good for a lot of people. Uh, So God... Is sovereign over those events but you know the the supreme example of that is the crucifixion of Christ where Peter actually in his sermon in Acts 2 um, holds the Jews who are listening to him accountable for what they had done to the Messiah, and yet in the same breath, said this was God's predestined plan. Um, I'm convinced that the crucif at the crucifixion of Christ, Satan was probably thinking, "Checkmate, got him." But what was really happening? Satan was defeated. At that, at the cross, because God um, is sovereign, and He can use even work through the sinful choices of people who are accountable for those choices, but He can work through those things to accomplish His sovereign good. It's just amazing to me. Anyway, let's go to page eighty-two and I wish that we could read all of this, but uh, let's go to uh, item number two there. To God, as king of the universe, is due from angels and men and every other creature, whatever worship, service, or obedience he is pleased to require of them. And again, why is that the case? He's creator. He's in charge, and everything he does is good. So that first passage there in Deuteronomy 6, the command, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. You know, what's interesting about that, of course, is we're commanded to love him. And the nature of the love is it's, 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 from within, from the heart, right? We're commanded to love him from the heart. And most people uh, pat themselves on the back when they do things that make it appear that they're loving God because they're obeying him. But if it's not from the heart, they're not loving him as he commanded. And so Jesus came down hard on the Pharisees for that very reason. Um, they made the appearance to men that they were loving God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. But Jesus said, you're like whitewashed tombs. You know, look good on the outside, but on the inside, you're filled with dead men's bones. Um, and what counts is the inside, of the heart. Okay. Uh Let's go down to the third one there, Psalm a hundred.
1: Shout directly to the Lord over the earth, serve the Lord with gladness, come before him with joyful sin. Server the Lord himself is God, and teach him in us and not in our souls. We are his people and she his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his course with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name. For the Lord is good, his will of is everlasting and his faithfulness to all generation.
0: So you're all familiar with Psalm 100, a, a call to worship, right? which should be natural to those of us who understand that he's the creator, we're creatures. That should be a natural response that we would worship him. And it just gives lots of examples of both the reasons for it and the nature of the worship, the kind of worship we ought to, to have. Uh, it's about... It's all about God. It's not about us. We're just his creatures. We get something similar in Psalm 150. Could somebody read that?
1: Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty expanse. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with harp and lyre. Praise him with timbrel and dancing. Praise him with stringed instruments and pipe. Praise him with loud cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. It gives a lot of specific uh, uh, avenues for praising the Lord, but then ultimately it just says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Um, actually,. Um, Elsewhere in scripture, we see that even things that don't have breath are praising the Lord. Like um, the heavens declare the glory of God, right? Uh, all of his creation just gives testimony that he's creator, that uh, his, it, what should be our, our conclusion when we realize that God created all this? Our conclusion would be: What about God? Certainly, all-powerful, wise. Because look at how orderly it is and beautiful, right? Uh, there are lots of things that we we should recognize. Just it should be a no-brainer. Just interacting with and observing, even the surface of the intricacies of his creation. And yet Romans 1 tells us that people have um, worships and serve the creature rather than the creator. And uh, so this worship ought to be just be a natural response to what we observe in creation. And um, there are lots of ways to do that. Uh, singing and, and uh instruments and and so on and lots of focuses in our worship you know uh, praising for what he's done his mighty deeds right just giving illustration of his power and his greatness and so on we can acknowledge that and praise him for that Uh, praise him according to his excellent greatness so it's not just what he's done but who he is his character and that's why we've been studying his character Um, So it's good to have both reminders and challenges to not lose sight of the fact that worship is our uh, profession. It ought to be our business because we are his creatures and uh, he's put on display much of his character, and then he's revealed to us in Scripture even more of his plan and of his character. And how much more those of us who have um, experienced his forgiveness, cleansing, and uh, salvation, how much more thankful and observant we should be of his greatness, right? To worship him, and so it shouldn't bother us that God commands us to worship him. You know, if a human being commanded us to worship him, we'd say, "Wait a minute! <laughs> worship is reserved only for God, right?" Daniel and his friends had to had to make that point. But when God says it, um, it's natural. It's 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 right. It's obvious and yet so often we get wrapped up in ourselves rather than in God. Let's uh, go to number three on page 83. It pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the manifestation of the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, beauty, and goodness in the beginning to create the universe out of nothing. The Latin term there is ex nihilo, out of nothing, and all things were therein. Every, you know, the universe, everything that's involved in the universe, whether visible or invisible. When he says invisible, what's he talking about? Spiritual things, at least with the naked eye, right. particularly. Right. Um, but yeah, I think it's referring to a lot of things that. Um, um, I mentioned earlier the, the created order, you know, the, the laws of God. nature. That's really a misnomer. It's the laws of God to govern the created order. Um, you know, you, you don't see gravity; you see its effects. You don't see the wind, but you see its effects. Um, but also, there is that spiritual dimension. Angels. We don't see angels typically, but God created them. And uh, there have been appearances. You know, they take on a a form that people can see for specific purposes at a specific point in time. Um, But yeah, all of that is created by God. We
1: saw some documentaries about nature, uh, for example, I don't know, the death of the sea, or. And you see all these. Fabulous creatures that all they had their function, their life, their cycles,
0: and everything. We didn't
1: even see that this is just for God. Yeah. I don't know, pleasure. Yeah,
0: even even now, new things are being discovered.
1: Yeah, that's what you see. We are not aware of that, but mm-hmm. they are there, they are mm-hmm. sick, they have their life, their cycle, their function. Mm-hmm. God pleasure.
0: And there's a lot of interdependence also mm-hmm. uh, throughout all of creation. It's just, yeah, how can you look at that and say, it just happened by chance, you know. That slaps God in the face, right? Um, so anyway, it pleased God to create the universe out of nothing uh, and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in six literal days. Moreover, he created uh, all he created was very good, so. When it says six literal days, what's it referring to? 24-hour periods. How do we know that? Well, God revealed it to us. We wouldn't know it specifically. That's where general revelation is somewhat limited. But in special revelation, he gave us some details, right? His word. Um, And so we read in Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And at the end of uh, pretty much all of those successive days, he looked at what he created and said it was good. And in fact, it was good. And he gets to the sixth day and he makes uh, the animals, and ultimately makes uh, Adam and Eve, Actually, he made Adam, and he said it's not good. Not that there's a problem with Adam, but what was not good? He was alone. He He said it's not good for Adam to to be alone. I'll make a a helper suitable for him, which is not a a modification of God's original intent. It's just um, emphasizing that everything's good, but now it's going to get even better. And so he made um, uh, Eve and um, married them. And at the end of all that, the end of day six, he said, it's very good. Referring not just to Eve, not just to their marriage, but to everything he created. It's very good. And as, as you walk through the six days of creation that are listed for us in Genesis 1, what you find is um, what was needed for the final stage was put in place in the previous day. And what was needed for that day was put in place in the previous day. And it's all progressive to the the ultimate um, design they had in mind all along. Um, and uh, for what it's worth, you know, the people kind of nitpick and say, well, wait a minute, how could there have been days, the first few days, before God created the sun? You know, and the earth kind of goes around the sun. That's how we, and the, the earth is rotating relative to the sun. Um, God said in day one, let there be light, but there wasn't. A sun or moon or stars until day three, something like that. Um, So how could there have been days is the question. And the answer is real simple. How is there a day now? The earth is rotating relative to the sun, relative to a source of light. God created light on that very first day, and there is this blob of an earth, Uh, what was visible at that point was mostly just water, right? All that had to happen was for him to be rotating that, to begin that rotation relative to the source of light, and as it says in scripture, there was evening, there was morning, the first day, or the second day, or the third day.
1: Um, even at that point, like the first thing God created was time. So
0: even without a standard by which we can measure it, He was measuring it. So like even if He'd left light until day six, it still would have been days because that's the period of time that He has defined for us. He just like giving us a light source that the Earth rotates
1: around was just a handy way for us to keep track of it. So. Yeah,
0: yeah. He does say when He created the 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 sun, the moon, the stars, and whatever that He created them. Uh, among other things, for seasons and keeping track of, of days and months and years and whatever. Um, what's fascinating, though, is that while that's true, what's fascinating is none of that indicated, said anything about a week. Where do we get the concept of a week in terms of a length of time?
1: Rested on day
0: Yeah. Exodus 20 particularly, and let's go to our third passage here, Exodus 20, 11. And this is the Ten Commandments now. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So the context there is, you know, keep the Sabbath. It's a reminder of God's creation, his created order. Uh, week, the concept of a week, comes from God's created time period. Six days of work, one day of rest. Um, things like months and years and, and days can be derived by the physical aspects of, of uh, all that he created. Uh, the, the, it's kind of inconvenient that months... You know, early on, of course, um, months were were uh, identified relative to the phases of the moon, right? Um, it's it's kind of a shame that the the phases of the moon, multiple phases of the moon, don't fit into one rotation around the sun. So we had to choose. Do you want to subdivide the, the, the year, or do you want to start from the from the moon, and uh, eventually people migrated from surrounding, uh, being based on the moon, and having it based on the revolutions around the sun. Anyway, that's just got kind of curiosity. Um, and this, this, as we sort of mentioned, this is very integral to our worship of God. Because if, if we think we just kind of happened, Uh, Just by chance, kind of ignoring everything that should be just crystal clear to us, both from creation and and certainly special revelation. But even creation is enough in our conscience. God, that's part of general revelation. Um, God says that we're accountable. No excuse. But he's given us even more information to give us guidance and to improve our worship, understand more of his character that we can praise him for. So I mentioned earlier here uh, Psalm 19. It's uh, the third from the bottom on page 83. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. It uses words like telling and declaring. The... The heavens and the whole expanse of, of space and of heaven isn't speaking human words, but are nonetheless telling of the glory of God and the work of his hands. And it says, day to day pours forth speech. I mean, everything out there is just screaming, God created this, right? And night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech in a human sense nor are there words there there isn't a voice that we can hear them say but their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances they're just screaming God created this to the end of the world and in them he has placed a tent for the sun and, and so on. So the beginning of Psalm 19 focuses on that general revelation, mostly God's creation. And then the rest of Psalm 19 focuses on special revelation, just uh, praising God for the, um, uh, the value, the virtue, the enduring character of God's word. Uh, and it's sweeter than a honeycomb, right? Okay, can someone read the last one on the page there, Isaiah 44,
1: 24? Tarina? Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and the one who formed you from the womb. I, the Lord, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone.
0: So as if we needed any clarification, God is very clear. Right. What should be obvious to anyone who looks at it, he's confirming. But he says he's not only your creator, but also your redeemer. And that carries a lot with it, right? Let's flip over to page 84. Right in the middle there, Acts 17.24, Paul is speaking to the philosophers in um, Athens. And... Toward the middle of that uh, speech, if you will. He says, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, by virtue of his being creator, um, he does not dwell in temples made with hands. So, you know, you've got all these gods, these Greek Mythological gods, and you have a temple for this person, temple for that person, and and uh, they're just made up. And he says he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. Um, that doesn't mean that it was wrong for Israel to build a temple for him. That was actually God's God's desire to. To have a physical manifestation of his association with Israel and the object of their worship, and so on, but um, that can't contain him. Right. And then Hebrews eleven by faith. Uh, next to the last one, by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. So, repeatedly in Genesis 1, in that creation account, we see that God spoke and it happened. Let there be light and there was light. Right? Now, some of that creation, particularly the creation of man, he didn't just say, let there be man. What did he do? He created man out of the ground. And as I'm sure lots of Symbolism and significance to that, but um, and then he breathed into him life. Um, and of course, he created uh, Eve by performing the first surgery. Um, complete with an anesthesia. <laughs> uh, complete with anesthesia, not the sort that people use these days. But much better, I'm sure. Um, but anyway he was physically involved in uh, however we can imagine that in some cases in other cases he just spoke and it happened right and and so actually um, if anyone finds it hard to believe that God could create everything in six days your response to him ought to be you know what 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 boggles my mind, in some sense, is not how could God accomplish all that in six days, but why did he take so long, when he can just say the word and it happens, right? And part of the answer to that question is what we read in Exodus 20. He was laying down a pattern for what a weekly routine would be. It's, it's work, but also rest. And... Um, There's probably lots of other reasons as well. And you see the the, the methodical, stepwise progression through the days of creation is is helpful. Uh, But yeah, why did he wait so long when he could have actually just spoken and it was? Okay, well, there's much there. We haven't covered everything, but um, I hope that helps us grapple with and maybe even pay better attention to god's sovereignty Mm -hmm. Um, it's so easy to get wrapped up in our control sovereignty Um, and it's not that that's completely illegitimate he's given us responsibility and to exercise dominion but under his ultimate control sovereignty and will and um, Rather than being um, f- something that's fearful in a negative sense, that ought to be reassuring to us. That uh, there's nothing outside of His watchful eye; nothing's going to take Him by surprise. Uh, it's a bit disconcerting that He knows our hearts, but in the end, that's also a good thing, right? So. We should probably close in prayer.